You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. In your life, you have acquaintances, you have friends, and then you have close friends. And as a church, our circles of partnership are sort of similar. We have churches with which we are acquaintances, and we know them, and they know us. We have churches that we consider friends, and then we have churches in the city that are close friends, that we consider partners in the gospel. There's a deep sense of camaraderie and fellowship and alignment in how we see the world and how we think about ministry and how we pray for and want to serve our city. And Emmaus Church is one of those churches for us. It's a church that Cormdeo has partnered with, and we share a very, very common uh, theological vision for ministry and longing for God to do work in our city. They have been a great gospel partner and friend to us over the years. And uh, their pastor, Eric Raymond, is with us this morning. And Eric and I, as we've been praying and, and just trusting God for what he wants to do in our city, have asked, you know, how can we continue to build a sense of partnership among our churches and so uh, I wanted to invite Eric to come here and preach at Coram Deo. I'm going to go and preach at Emmaus next month. And so I hope you guys will get a sense, even hearing from Eric this morning, of, of the broader thing that we want to trust God to do. As we think about what God has entrusted to us, the work of making disciples and planting churches, uh, you know that's not the work of one church, right? That's the work of lots of churches and that to, to see gospel renewal in our city, it's going to take a movement that crosses boundaries of denominations and affiliations and networks, and that just is, is grounded in gospel partnership. And so we're really grateful for Emmaus. I'm thankful for Eric and for his friendship. And uh, I, I want to pray now um, for him as he comes to preach the word and for his church this morning. And, uh, and so let's go to the Lord together in prayer, and let's prepare our hearts then to hear from God's word in the book of Isaiah. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the capital C Church. Thank you that your church is not confined to one location, to one congregation, to one affiliation, but that you are building your church universal all over the world in every city and culture and context. Thanks that even in our own city, Father, we get the privilege of seeing you work and partnering with churches like Emmaus Church. We're so grateful for them. We're so thankful for the work you have done and are doing there and for the sense of fellowship and camaraderie between our churches. Uh, thanks for how you called them to the particular place where they are in South Omaha and have given them uh, tentacles reaching out into that neighborhood and even a, a Hispanic church plant that meets in their building that's reaching the, the Latino culture in that part of the city. Thank you for the people that they reach and serve and are blessed to make disciples of. Father, we want to pray that you'd prosper their ministry. We want to pray that you'd extend the reach of their influence. We want to pray that you would um, build your kingdom through their efforts. Uh, keep them faithful to you. We want to pray for Matt Fudge who's preaching there this morning and pray that you would give them a great gathering and work among their congregation and we want to pray for us as we gather here and as we have the privilege of hearing from pastor eric and and letting him serve us and minister your word to us now father would you give him great grace in the preaching of your word and give us great grace in the hearing of your word Father, we're here because we want to listen to you, we want to hear you, we want to be shaped by you, we want to give you uh, free reign to do the work of transformation in our lives and hearts. And so we want to pray that you do that this morning through the book of Isaiah and through your spirit working through Eric to help make that 
work, that text, that book clear to us. And so would you give him the power and presence of your spirit? Would you give us attentive hearts, open ears? Father, wherever we find ourselves this morning in our disposition toward you, would you soften us? Would you humble us? Would you make us attentive to what you want to teach us this morning? And would you, um, through this, cause us to worship Jesus more deeply? Uh, Turn our hearts and our attention now to your word as we hear it read and preached so that your purposes might be advanced in our lives and in our city, we pray. Amen. Our scripture this morning is Isaiah chapters 46 and 47. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and will save. To whom will you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god, and then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this, and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, and you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, for Israel my glory. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind the flour, put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered, and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. 
You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster will fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin will come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries, with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I want to, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to echo what Bob said uh, in that kind introduction. Uh, everything that he said about partnership in the city of Omaha, agree with, and I'm just thankful to the Lord. And I just want to encourage you as a church uh, that, about your pastor and your elder team. Uh, when we planted Emmaus Bible Church, when we began a few years back, uh, I, I met with Bob and talked with him, and he was very encouraging in a lot of ways, and just just his heart for other pastors and for other churches and for partnership for the gospel was, was a great encouragement. And just when it was that kind of that time of feeling alone and a little discouraged, uh, being able to talk with Bob and some of the other pastors was a tremendous blessing. So all that stuff that they talk about, being missional, gospel-centered, church planning, city renewal, what else? All those buzzwords that you guys might just be like, they're just throwing that stuff around. No, they, they really believe it, and they mean it, and they're committed to it. And, and we've, we've seen the fruit of that even in our context. So we praise God for, for your church, for you all. Uh, so I just want to greet you on behalf of Emmaus this morning. Uh, we're very thankful for Coram Deo Community Church, and we're just blessed by the partnership and ministry. So if you would, let me pray as we start off this morning. And we'll dive right into Isaiah 46 and 47. As you saw from the scripture reading, we have quite a bit of work in front of us this morning. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll jump right in. Our Father, we thank you uh, for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we're not here just theorizing, making stuff up, and self-help, and all kinds of other things that we would know in the back of our minds might not work. But we're reading and preaching the eternal Word of God. And as we lift up the Word of God, and we lift up the Son of God, that the Holy Spirit will glorify you, our Father. And so we ask this morning that you would draw hearts to love Christ, treasure Him, and walk in obedience to Him. Especially as we bridge the gap of context and trying to understand Isaiah, may it be fresh to us, may it be crisp, and may it bring about people who serve the Master for His glory. Amen. About 10 years ago, there was a movie entitled Master and Commander. I don't watch a lot of movies, but I remember that one because kids got it for me for Father's Day, and they said, we should, we should watch this movie. I think you'd like this movie. Uh, it was. It was a good movie. Uh, but there was one particular scene in there where there was a crewman named Hollum, and he kind of got the, the ship in some trouble uh, along the way, and he was feeling a tremendous amount of guilt. And about the middle of the night... All that guilt came to a head for him, 
And he went out on the deck, and there was a young other crewman on there, and they had a nice little dialogue back and forth, and they talked. And then uh, finally, Hollem grabs a cannonball and just basically says, good day, mate, and jumps over the edge. And there's the scene in the movie where he's, he's holding this cannonball, and he goes into the water and sinks to the bottom of the ocean, and he dies. Now, if, you, if you're asking about that that scene and, and what that would mean, it would be that the fact that the, the, the cannonball is a metaphor for all of his despair and his brokenness and his disappointment and his shame. He clung to it. It, it, it was the picture of him being ultimately disappointed and broken by his circumstances and his dashed hopes. He was undone. It's a vivid picture for us today about the nature of idolatry. Idolatry happens when we cling to other things, particularly created things, at the expense of the Creator, God. And as you've been working through Isaiah, doubtless you have seen on countless occasions idolatry come up. And and Pastor Bob and others bringing that to your attention about the foolishness of clinging to created things at the expense of God. And so it is with Hollem in the movie, all who cling to their, their idols will fall perilously to their demise with them in their grasp. So serious business. The false promises ring in our ears that they can't deliver. Idols can't deliver, but market, they can destroy. Idols can't deliver you, they'll always disappoint you, and they most definitely will destroy you. It's important for us to have a grasp upon idolatry as we consider the passage this morning in Isaiah 46 and 47. Again, I'm not going to go into great depth about idolatry, but we do need to talk a little bit about it and try to get, maybe break up some soil on the front end for, in terms of application so you can be thinking, okay, what does this have to do with me? I don't know anything about Bell and Nebo. What's that going to do for me on Wednesday? Well, let, let's, let's front load the application a little bit so we can think about it. As I mentioned, idols are created things that we inflate to the place of value, and we honor them. So in the ancient culture, it was common to, to carve up wood or other images, gold or silver, and bow down before them. Today, we don't have the wood chippings on the floor, but idols aren't any less of a problem. Idols, according to the Bible, are very powerful and should be resisted. But on the same note, according to the Apostle Paul, idols are powerless because they're fake. Idols are powerless because they're fake, but at the same time, they're very powerful to people when we grasp a hold of them. They're just things that we impute with value, and those become very powerful. Some things today that we grab a hold of and, and elevate to a place of idolatry would be building our own personal identity, pursuing our own honor at the expense of everything else, oh, elevating acceptance, prioritizing comfort above all, or absolutely needing to control everything in our life. Anything that we build our life upon that's not God is an idol. You might be a person this morning, who crumbles if anyone ever says something to you that's not flattering? If that's the case, your idol is personal honor. You may get very frustrated. That means 
anxious about the future or bitter about the past. You may get very frustrated when your day doesn't go the way you planned it. Your idol is control. You may be obsessed with social media. You may frantically check it to see who liked, who commented upon, who retweeted you. Your idol is honor. You may find yourself overeating, overdrinking, or overindulging because you've had a bad day or because things didn't go your way. Your idol is personal comfort. See, this is real and personal for us, but as you read Isaiah 46 and 47, you find out it's real and it's personal to God. It's real and it's personal to God because He made you. He made me. And He made us to be worshipers. And so if we don't run to Him to give Him worship, to give Him glory, to give Him honor, if He's not our chief end, then we're stealing from Him. That's a capital offense. Idolatry is not just about some fat little doll that we bow down before and light candles around. That's not what it's about. Idolatry is about the God of the universe having his glory stolen by glory-hungry people like you and me who don't worship him. It's serious business. Created things are not able to bear the freight of greatest human need. That's God's task. Only He can do that. And He's passionate about confronting people who are are bowing down, who are genuflecting before created things at His expense. If you wanted a kind of a broad title for Isaiah 46 and 47, it would be God saying, listen to me. He says it over and over again. Listen to me. Hear me. Sit in silence. Listen to me. He's coming to his people to confront the apathy among the people. And maybe you can relate to this. There's apathy in worship. There's apathy in obedience. There's apathy in longing to this. And all the while, there's this this kind of broad acceptance of Babylonian culture. To the point where they're not as incensed over the practices of Babylon that they should be. In other words, Babylon is doing things and they've come to become more accepting of these things to the point where they're not frustrated. They, they don't see things like God sees them. They're not incensed by them. And therefore, God is confronting that. I wonder if we can relate to any of that. Watching movies or television shows where Sin is broadcast and openly mocked God, and we find ourselves laughing, enjoying, and carrying on about it. That's that type of thing. It's that type of thing. Isaiah is coming in here, and he's saying, through the God of the universe, listen to me, listen to me, worship. That's why God is so exercised here. It's indifference to God and acceptance of other gods. And like a loving parent, perhaps some of you can relate, like a loving parent with, with a child who is making very poor and perhaps even damaging decisions, God the Father confronts the issue head on. Through the prophet Isaiah, God the Father is like the parent who stands up in the living room and says, enough, listen to me, I have something to say. 
And we'd say, okay. All right. All right, God. You have something to say. You have our attention. You're quite upset. I don't quite understand, perhaps, how you're so upset and what you're so upset with. But you're God. I'll listen. So God gives us three divine declarations. Three attention-grabbing declarations. The first... You should remember all these, by the way. I worked really hard at trying to, trying to come up with things that you'll remember, okay? Here they are. Three attention-grabbing divine declarations. You don't have to remember that part. Just these three. First, idolatry is dumb. How's that? Second, trust me. Third, I win. That's what God says. Idolatry is dumb. Trust me, and I win. First, idolatry is dumb. Chapter 46, verses 1 and 7. Idolatry is dumb. It's a play on words because dumb means that they can't speak, they can't hear. In the old way that we would say dumb. The Bible makes this point over and over again that these gods can't hear, they can't speak, they can't do anything. They're dumb. But it's also foolish. It's a more popular sense of the word dumb. Look at verse 1. Bell bows down. Nebo steeps. Stoops, rather. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go on into captivity. Okay, so a so little bit of background here, just for context. Nebo and in, 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 in Bell here, these are pagan gods. Bell is an alternate name for Marduk the chief god of the city of Babylon. Nebo is the speaker, the son of Bel-Marduk. He was the patron of wisdom in the art of writing. And basically his function was to write on the tablets of destiny the fates decreed by the gods for the upcoming year. This might sound like a board game. If it does and you play this game, you should repent. Okay? They write down on the tablets of destiny the fates decreed by the gods for the up year, upcoming year. And so basically they get the, the download from the gods of what's going to happen and they write it down and they say, okay, here it is. This is some type of pagan spiritual farmer's almanac. Here it is. And then every year at the New Year festival, he was brought from his temple southwest to, to Babylon. And he was carried in a procession with his father, Bel Marduk. Notice he was carried through the streets to the great shrine. And Israel would have seen this firsthand, both when they were in captivity and then as it was continually talked about. It was the greatest event on the calendar year. But notice Isaiah's version is much different than what you might read in the Welcome to Babylon Chamber of Commerce magazine. What he's saying is something much different. They're too heavy and exhausted these animals are from bearing them, and they fall down before the temple. They don't even make it there. Notice, these things you carry are born as burdens on the beast. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burdens. In other words, you carry your gods around. What kind of god is this? You carry these gods around. They're weak, they're empty. Isaiah is saying, a god that you carry around can't carry you. A God that you have to save when you drop it can't save you. You see how dumb this is? 
number of years ago, we, uh, our kids, we have six kids. And so the two that were little girls, they're 12 and 10 now. They'll be here in second service. Uh, they had this little game they played called Webkins. So five or six years ago. Webkins basically was an online game. You, or, yeah, you get it on the computer and then you had these little animals that you had to do these tokens and you had to keep feeding these things or else eventually they would just die. And I'm sorry I can't be more elaborate on it, but the point is, <laughs> if you didn't take care of these things, eventually these, they'd die. And how sad is it for a seven-year-old little girl to go to the computer and look and just get the, like, this thing on its back? It looks horrible. But what it did is it served to show me that. It's like, that's what an idol is. And I explained to him, it's, we're, we're just, it gives you all this joy and this excitement, and it, but it just lets you down because they just die. They're empty. They're worthless. Well, we don't play with Webkins, but we carry our idols around, right? Our phones. Oh, my blessed iPhone. Or my blessed Android, right? My phones, my technology, my connectivity, my science, my knowledge, my whatever. I got it all right here and there. Oh, let me, I got to power up, right? I got to plug it in. Oh, I need an update. Oh, man, it's not working. Hey, can I use your map? Right? It's the same thing. And we put all of our confidence and our hopes in all of these things, but at the end of the day, they don't deliver. They don't deliver. Makes the point that idolatry is dumb. Implication would be don't hitch yourself to stuff that can't deliver. It's absolutely foolish to drink out of rusted out cups. Just imagine a man that is absolutely thirsty in the wilderness. He's dying of thirst and he comes upon a cup, sees it there, and there's a little oasis and he reaches it down, he picks it up and brings it up to his mouth and as soon as he gets it up, it's empty. Why? Because it's all rusted out and full of holes. He's thirsty. He's disappointed. That's idolatry. Things that we impute and elevate and, and give honor and value to are just rusted out cups when we're dying of thirst. Isaiah is saying, idols are dumb. Think about it. Second, trust me. Trust me. God gets at this by saying, let's look back and let's look forward. Look back and look forward. Remember what God has done. Look at verse 3. Listen to me, he says. Oh, house of Jacob. He's talking to Israel. All the remnant of the house of Israel, listen to me, who have been born by me from before your birth. So now he goes, from your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. Into gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and save. So you see what he's doing there. They can't carry their idols. The idols can't carry themselves. The idols can't save. But God carries them. God saves them. So God is saying, trust me, from before you were even conceived, I took care of you. All the way to the point where you have gray hairs and everything in between, I am faithful. You can trust me. That's good news. I carry and I save. That's why he says in verse 5, to whom, to whom, or to what will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? 
Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver and scales hire a goldsmith and make it into a god. They fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They sit in its place. It stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Again, they're dumb. But look at me. You can trust me. Every time you cry to me, I hear you. And they might be feeling in Isaiah like God doesn't hear them because they're in captivity. But God's saying, no, I, I hear you. And as Bob preached last week on chapter 5, he's going to send Cyrus, which seemed like an impossibility at the time. The king of Persia would come and destroy Babylon. And that's something of his looking forward. He looks forward and says, in verse 8, I'm sorry, this is still looking back. My my apologies. Verse 8, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. So now he's telling them to look back. For I am God, there is no other. I am God and there's no one or none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So he's saying, look back. God is the one who predicts what he's going to do. And he, he does it. He said that you would go into captivity. And here you are. You're in captivity. But then he calls them to look forward. As he says, declaring the end, verse 10, from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, looking forward, calling a bird of prey from the east. Who's the bird of prey? 45.1. That's Cyrus, the anointed one, the king of Persia. He's going to call him in. God's saying, trust me, I have a plan. The man of counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. He's looking forward. He's saying, listen to me. Again, he says it. And we know from history that that's exactly what happens. In last week's sermon, if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to listen to it. Pastor Bob goes through and talks through about how Cyrus attacked Babylon. It was an impossibility, an impregnable city. And Cyrus came and took it over, just as God said. Looking forward, though, God says, trust me because of what I will do. Listen to verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion, my future glory. He's saying here, God is faithful. God will accomplish what he says. God will always keep his word. You know what that means? You should hear his word and you should heed it. You will never go wrong by spending time in this book, reading it, praying through it, thinking about it, believing it, and waiting for it to happen. No matter what you're doing with your time. This is not a waste of time. You should have an ink stain on your nose every day reading this book. This thing right here, this book, the Bible, is more current than a Sunday morning newspaper right now. In fact, it's more current than if you pull up any news thing on your phone. It's more current. This right here, the book. It's the eternal Word of God. And all this other stuff is dated and expired and passing away. You say, well, how do you know that? I just had to tell you who Bell and Nebo were. Prove the point. This book, who are we talking about? We're talking about God. Never build your theology from the newspaper. Build it from the Bible. And also, 
Never build your theology from your experiences. Build it from the Bible. One of the most dangerous things we have is we can run into some difficult times. And if you're in one of those seasons right now, I, listen, I'm not making light of it, minimizing it, or, or saying anything other than, I've been there with you, I know it's hard. But when we're in those seasons, those valleys, those difficult times, your tendency and my tendency is to, is to project our understanding of what's going on on God's character. In other words, we interpret God's character, who He is, based upon our, our circumstances. You know how dangerous that is? What the Bible calls us to do over and over again is interpret our circumstances in light of God's character. It's a huge difference. If something bad happens to you, you say, well, where's God? Versus, no matter what happens to you, you say, this is God's will and He's good. I will trust Him. You see the difference? They're in captivity. God's saying, I got a plan. It may not be what you want, but trust me, I got a plan. And that's where it comes forward with, I will bring near my righteousness. It's not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, my glory. What's this getting at here? Ultimately, this is getting us to the gospel, where he says it right here. I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. He's talking about Jesus Christ, ultimately. Because it's through the incarnation of Christ where, where God puts on human flesh, fully God and holy man, born as a baby, lives the perfect life, obeys the law of God perfectly because you and I wouldn't and couldn't. And then He goes to the cross and He dies the death on the cross that you and I deserve to take the wrath and guilt and shame that we deserve. He bore that all on the cross. And there on the cross, according to Romans 3... We understand that God demonstrates His righteousness through the death of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God is on vivid display through the, God, through the cross, through the gospel. Unlike any other act of judgment in the entire Bible or all of history, the gospel, the cross, is the righteousness of God on vivid display. You say, well, how is that? Well, here it is. How righteous is God? Righteous just means how perfect, how straight is He? He is so righteous, He is so just, that the way in which you absolutely show that righteousness is by crushing the righteous one. In other words, God is so righteous and so just that there's no other way to satisfy justice and forgive people like you and me other than crushing Jesus. His utter perfection upon the cross is the display of God's righteousness. It takes Christ's perfection to satisfy the righteousness of God. Do you see that? How can God be righteous, that is just and absolutely perfect, and loving to you and me at the same time? How can He be loving to us, forgiving Gracious, merciful, welcoming, promising. How can he be all of that here and be righteous? Have you thought about that? Does he just dismiss his righteousness because he's in a good mood and wants to be loving? Never. 
The Bible makes clear that he's righteous and loving at the same time through the cross. He puts his righteousness on display by righteously crushing our substitute in our place. So that he could put his love on display by loving us through Christ. God doesn't compromise. He's the only God in all of history. All these made up gods and all the gods that people knock on your door and try to get you to believe in. Those gods compromise. The God of the Bible does not compromise. It says in Romans chapter 3, so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that he might be the just, the righteous, and the justifier, the one who forgives, the one who has faith in Christ. That's glorious. Isaiah is saying, I will put my righteousness on display. I will bring it near and my salvation will not delay. I'll put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. That's what he does through the gospel. So God is saying, trust me. Listen to Romans chapter 8 if you, if you want a, a little kind of corollary to this. How do we know we can trust God? Listen to this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, that is the gospel, the cross, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You say, God, I don't know if you love me. I don't know if you're for me. Look, look to the cross. It's on display. He loves you. He did not spare his own son, but to deliver him up for us all, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? So you have idols are dumb. You have trust me. And third, I win. Now, we're going to kind of breeze through chapter 47 a little bit because of time. I got a little excited there. Um, so we'll, we'll look at that. But Isaiah 47 is basically a poem that, just, that predicts the destruction of the Babylonian Empire. And this is, this is crazy in one sense because nobody would have predicted this at the time. But this is God predicting what would happen. And you might have noticed during the scripture reading that there's a level, level of sarcasm in that, some biting phraseology, where through the prophet Isaiah, God is making clear that he is not amused by their plurality and pluralism. Basically, the chapter breaks out, I think, in four, three ways. Humiliation in verses 1 through 4, hubris or pride in verses 5 through 11, and helplessness in 12, 12 through, through 15. We'll just kind of walk through this a little bit so you get the flow of it. But he's predicting to Babylon this humiliation. And the language that he uses here in verses 1 through 4 is very strong. It would at least be PG-13. He says, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne. See, they have thrones. They have all of the, the beauty and the honor and the riches. He says, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. It's that that." that that beautifulness that, that Babylon had, the, everything that would scream riches and security and beauty, everything that would be prestiged by people or prized. He says, take the millstones and grind the flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. You know what that means? You're no longer in the palace. You're a slave. You can't wear the dress anymore. Because you need to work with bricks. All you women go work with bricks. You're slaves now. 
That's crazy talk for these people. This is utter humiliation to Babylon. Put off your veil. Then he says, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. Most commentators believe this, this is language that has to do with rape. And what would happen when another country would come in and destroy another country? When Persia is going to come into Babylon, same thing when Babylon came into Assyria, is the same thing. They kill the men, they rape the women. And that's what God says is going to happen to this prideful nation of Babylon because of their sin. But then he says in verse 3, I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. He's going to judge these people. And the reason, as we see in verses 5 through 11, of why this happens is because they were arrogant and prideful. God used Babylon for a purpose, verses 6 through 11. But instead, they, it says in verse 6, I gave them in your hand, you showed them no mercy. There was no kindness and, and care. You were exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, thinking you're going to live forever. He says in verse 9, these two things shall come upon you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. It shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the power of your great enchantments. You're going to be childless. You're going to lose it all. This is because of their hubris, their pride. Verse 10, they said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. You said in your heart, I am, and there's no one beside me. That is the statement of self-existence and deity. And make no mistake about it, God is teaching here that sin is the deification of self. When you sin against God, you, you say that he's not worthy, and you deify self and say, I have the right to do what I want. God's going to bring that judgment. You felt secure, but I am there. Ultimately, God says. So he tells him to stand fast in it, but you're helpless. Those verse 12, stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries which you've labored from your youth. These guys invented astrology and the horoscopes. You're wearied from your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens and gaze at the stars, maybe they can save you. And he says in verse 14, you're utterly helpless. Behold, they're like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. They're helpless. And verse 15 ends, there is no one to save you. Helpless. God is speaking to Babylon here and making the point that he wins. But the chapter is not ultimately about the Babylonians. The chapter is about God. That's why the point is, I win. Babylon is something of a current, in Isaiah's time, current administration of opposition to God. They're throughout history. Let me just build a little framework for you and then show you how this makes application. At the very end of the Bible, Revelation 18.2, we read, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. What are we talking about? We're talking about opposition to God. That opposition to God will ultimately be crushed through the Lamb. Where did that come from? We see it in Isaiah. We see it in Revelation. If we trace it all the way back, if we come back through, through, <clears throat> excuse me, through Revelation, back through the New Testament, we see Jesus talking to people, saying, you are of your father, the devil. If you had Abraham of your father, you would have believed me because he wrote of me. 
Now we get this two-family thing going here. Almost two-city. And then if you trace it back through the Old Testament, you have some of that knowledge of the people of God and the people of the devil. The seed of the woman, if you will. Genesis 3, in the seed of the serpent. That Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman, ultimately Jesus and all those that would be in Christ, and the seed of the serpent, all those that would rebel against God and follow after the serpent. You might put it this way, Zion and Babylon, all those in Christ, Zion, all those who oppose God through rebellion, Babylon. It's not about dirt, okay? It's not about Iraq and Israel, hear me. This is about the living God and opposition to God. And through the gospel, what Jesus did is he crushed the opposition. And it says in Colossians chapter 1 that he, God, transferred us from the domain of darkness, Babylon, to the kingdom of the Son, Zion. You understand what Christ did? He crushed the enemy. Sin, Satan, and death, all that opposed God, crumpled under his foot. He crushed it. And that, that end game of the expiration of all opposition of God is where this is going. And so what God is saying in Isaiah is, I win through Christ. Babylon has an expiration date in the context and ultimately. So what's the application? If you or I persist in our pride, we are punching our ticket for the city of destruction. If we persist in our pride, whether that is mocking God loudly or more quietly, we're not His. We need to come to Christ, bow before Him in worship. As Psalm 2 says, kiss the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. As one Bible teacher said, there's no refuge from Him, but there's refuge in Him. There's no refuge from Christ, but there's refuge in Christ. So I don't know where you are this morning. Unbeliever, believer, hard-hearted, soft-hearted, Wherever you are, we all need to let go of idols and cling to Christ. Christ is the one that would welcome all who are hungry and hurting, those who are harassed and helpless, those who have tried to get it out of idols and found themselves absolutely broken. He welcomes you to himself as the one who can satisfy. Furthermore, if you are a Christian, there's a mission implication of this. Our whole city is filled with people drinking out of the rusty cups that don't satisfy. They're hurt and helpless. The guilt from their sin and the disappointment over idols has them reeling. And you and I have the words of eternal life. We must speak to them the truth of the gospel. And finally, there's a devotional aspect of this. 
You and I did not discover Jesus. He came and stripped the idols out of our hands and took us to himself. That's grace. That's grace. Any moment of joy that you have in God, or happiness, or hope, or feeling of, of acceptance in Him, or knowledge from the Word of God that has come, is all because of His grace. And He loves you, and He lavishes you with that. So praise Him for that. God is saying through this passage, listen to me. It's neither smart nor safe to turn away from the God of the Bible. But it's wise and blessed Trust and treasure Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before You this morning. Our Redeemer. The Lord of hosts is His name. The Holy One. Of Israel. We come before you and admit our need to confess sin, to cling less tightly to idols and more tightly to Christ. We trust that you speak to us through your word and your spirit to bring conviction and encouragement. So may the seriousness by which you approach idolatry and worship ring true in our hearts. And may the perfection of your word, particularly predicting the future, serve to give us great confidence in you that we can trust you and we can hope in you. Lord, we thank you this morning through the name of our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we hope. Amen.